Got out of bed and came to church, huh? Are you glad to be here? That wasn't real convincing. <laughs> I'll ask you again, are you glad to be here? I'm excited to be here. I really believe, I'll tell you what I've been praying. I've been praying that I would see Jesus in ways I've never seen Him before. I'll just be honest, I need to see Jesus in ways I've never seen Him before. And it's our, my prayer for all of us that, that we'll get in on that this week. And as we start our time together, I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it. I want us to look at the um, epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by Son. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever felt rejected? Have you ever wondered why we do what we do? Or have you ever come to the place before? Now, I don't think everybody gets here, but, but some people do. Have you ever come to the place where you begin to question whether it's worth it or not? Maybe you flirted with the idea of uh, going back to the old life or maybe mixing the old with the new. And I realize, I can tell by the way you're looking at me, that's not the kind of question that you expect on an opening revival service. But I ask it for a purpose, because if we can relate, if you can answer yes to any of those questions, then maybe you can begin to understand where the people who are being written to are living. I say the people who are being written to, because really, we don't know who these people are. We don't know what church is being addressed. This letter, the Hebrews, isn't like the letter to the Romans that's written to the church in Rome or the Ephesian letter that's written to the church in Ephesus. When you come to this letter, we don't have a geographic location for these people. We simply don't know who they are. All we know about them is that they're Jewish Christians. And I say that as if it's something less, but you've got to realize when we say that that's all that we know, that's a lot for us to know. Why? Because it gives us some insight into the type of people that it is. It shows us that these are people who have been raised the right way. Mom and dad have brought them up in synagogue. They've gone to the caravan program there. They've got all the badges that go along with that. Mamo and Papo have raised them right. And now later in their living, they've encountered the person of Jesus. And having encountered the person of Jesus, they've decided to, to go a different direction. They found new life in Christ. They've walked away from the old tradition. And you've got to think about that. That's a big deal. Now, just to bring it kind of into a, our context, now think about this. If mom and dad had brought you up in the church of the Nazarene, if Mamo and Papa were founding members of the Marysville Church of the Nazarene, if you were Nazarene through and through, whatever that is, I'm not, but if, and now later in your life, you've chosen to go in a different direction, you begin to go in a different way, how do you think mom and dad are going to feel? You think they're going to be pleased, excited about that? How do you think Memo and Papo are going to react? You've got to understand, when you see this group of people, things have changed for them. And because of this newfound faith, they are facing rejection. They are facing uh, persecution in ways that you and I may never know. Let's think about this. Familial. I talked about mom and dad and Memo and Papo. If you had decided to go a different way, it wouldn't be popular, would it? I mean, mom and dad wouldn't be happy. And, and you've got to understand that probably familially, these people are being rejected. I started in that a minute 
minute ago. And, and, and you know, probably the best illustration of this would be, how many of you are familiar with um, Amish culture? How many of you have been to places like Shipshawana, Indiana, or, or Northeast Ohio, all those sorts of things? How many of you watch the Amish Mafia? How many of you are awake and alive here today? Uh, You know, you're familiar. Uh, There's this thing in the Amish culture that if there's a family member that does something to disgrace the family, or maybe they've chosen to walk away from that tradition, there's this thing that's known as shunning. And the other family members will literally act as though this person does not exist, as if they were not born. And it's very possible that this group of people are facing that kind of rejection familially. Forget about that level. Let's think about it on this light. Culturally or socially, Societally, It wasn't popular in this day to be a Christian. Now, the timing of this letter is somewhere around late 60s, early 70s AD. And you'll remember thinking about this region in Italy. Most scholars will place it there. You'll remember in high school, junior high and college that you read about a guy. You studied about a man named Nero. He was a ruler in this region. And you'll recall that Nero was kind of ruthless. He wasn't this kind guy. So what he was doing during this time period for his garden parties. Do you all attend garden parties? I thought you were more cultured than the first crowd. They, they didn't. Well, we just call them barbecues. But, but what he would do for the entertainment for his garden parties is he wouldn't bring in a bluegrass group. He wouldn't bring in a band. He wouldn't bring in instrumentalists. What he would literally do for the viewing pleasure of everybody that was in attendance on that day is he would take believers, those who would claim the name of Jesus, and he would burn them at the stake. Right there in front of everybody for claiming the name of Christ, they would give their lives. I'm trying to get you to see it was not popular in this time period, in this region, to claim the name of Jesus, to be Christian. So we see this church who are living at this crucial juncture. I mean, they're really kind of right there at the edge. They're on the precipice. Either they're going to walk forward in the power of Jesus, going to make a bold stand for him, or they're going to shrink back. Either they're going to stand up for Jesus or they're going to kind of drift away. They're going to fade into the shadows. We watch as they're living there. Aren't you thankful this morning? I said it before. I'll say it again. If you're not thankful for anything else, you ought to be thankful for this. Aren't you glad that we have a God who is not ignorant to our, our, our circumstance? Aren't you thankful? Nobody else may not know what you're going through, but aren't you thankful that he knows exactly where you are He knows exactly what you're facing, and we can be assured because of our God, we know that he's at work. We see, even though they feel like they're out there on their own, we watch as God realizes where they're living. He understands the dangers. He knows the circumstances that they're facing. So we see him as he begins to move upon the heart of another individual. And I say another individual because just as though we don't know who this church is, we don't know who this person is either. We don't know the author of this letter. It's really kind of frustrating. I'm analytical. I get on my own nerves, so I know I'm going to get on yours. Uh, I'm obsessive compulsive. When I start to study a, a passage or a book of the Bible, there are certain things that you want to know, and we simply don't know who the church is. We don't know who the author is. Now, there are people that have made um, guesses, speculation, that sort of thing, and there is a school of thought among some scholars that it was Paul that wrote this letter. In fact, if you're reading in the New King, in the King James Version or the New King James, you'll read a heading there that says a 
epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. And it says that because there are some phrases, there are some terms in here, so some ideas that are expressed that Paul expressed as well. But if you're going to take an honest look at this letter, if you're going to be very real, there are many things against his authorship as there are four. So you cannot definitively say that Paul is the author. There are some, because of the similarities, who will say it's an associate of Paul's that wrote this letter. In fact, the old Cambridge Bible, if you go to the end of the letter, you'll see there's a little notation that says, as written by Timothy for Paul. Now, I have a little bit of problem with that because when you look in chapter 13, Timothy mentions himself by name, and I don't know very many people who would do something like that, but there are some people that believe that Timothy wrote this thing. There is a school of thought. Now, I know that this is going to be hard for you to grasp, some of you to get a hold of, but, but I want you to understand. There are some people that would tell you, now see if you can, that a woman wrote this book. <laughs> I didn't expect the female voices for some reason. I, I, someone like Priscilla, someone of the sort. We simply don't know who the author is. When it comes to the authorship of Hebrews, I have to fall with Origen. Origen said it like this, God only knows. All we know, we can be certain that God, through the Holy Spirit, begins to deal with this individual who has the heart of a pastor. So from here on out, I'm going to refer to them as the pastor. I call them that because as God begins to lay this church upon their heart, he begins to understand the circumstance that they're facing. He realizes the danger, the situation that they're in. And inspired by the Spirit of Christ, we watch as they sit down and they begin to pin this letter and I'm going to say this sermon to this church that needs to hear the message. It's a sermon from the heart of a pastor to a group of people that needs to hear it. And they tell us in preaching, we don't always get a hold of this, but they tell us in preaching that every good message needs to have one main point. What we refer to it in homiletics as is the, is the proposition. You should be able, when you leave this place, to say this is what Billy was trying to get across. Now, I, I don't always achieve that, so let's just say, when you leave from week to week, you should be able to say, this is what Pastor Paul was saying. This was the point of the sermon. This was the proposition. What we like to do as preachers is we like to add a whole lot of other points. And if we can have the same letter for the beginning of each one, it looks really good in the bulletin. We get excited about those things. But, but one main point called the proposition. And if I were to give you this morning of the, the proposition to the sermon to the Hebrews, this is what I would suggest it would be. We watch as the pastor sits down thinking about this church and the circumstance and the danger that they face. And he begins to pen this message that's really going to encourage them to, to stick with it. He wants to say to them, don't you dare turn back. Don't you dare go back to the life you once knew. How could you return to the old when you've experienced the reality of the new? In fact, there's nothing left for you there. Why? Because everything in the old system was just a shadow of the reality of what we have in the new. How could you return to darkness when you've walked in the light? How could you return to death when you've experienced new life? Don't you dare go back. Why? Because Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of it all. He's better than anything that ever has been. He's better than anything that ever will be be. Jesus is better. Jesus is all. Don't you dare turn back. That's the proposition 
That's an incredible message. And I can tell you're thrilled about it as well. But I want to remind you this morning that that's a message that we need to hear. In the church of the Nazarene, in the church of Jesus Christ, in an age where we're enlightened, in an age where we're educated, in a society, in a culture that wants to be sensitive to everybody, who wants to tell us, you know what? It doesn't matter how you live your life. Or put it like this. It doesn't matter what God you claim. It doesn't matter what name you give Him or what way you choose to walk. As long as we just kind of coexist, as long as we're just good people, as long as we're moral, it's okay because it's all going to wash out in the end. We're all going to end up in the same place. That's what society wants to say to us today. And I want you to understand, I know you don't need to hear this, or I hope you don't need to hear this, but I want you to be reminded that in 2015, when we are more sensitive, where we are more enlightened, where we are more educated, we need to understand there is only one way. No matter what anybody else may tell you, no matter what what they say at school, no matter what they say in Washington, no matter what the world wants to dictate. When Jesus was here on this earth, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I want us to be reminded because this is a message that we need to be trumpeting. This is something we must never get over. Jesus Christ is still the only way. He is still the only truth. He is still the only life and if you're going to make it honey you're going to go through him well that's good preaching whether you realize it or not Jesus is all he's better than anything that ever has been he's better than anything that ever will be don't you dare turn back see I just feel like somebody needs to hear that because you've been flirting with the world don't you dare turn back When you found Jesus, you found it all. There's nothing left for you otherwise. That's a message, man. It's an incredible message. I enjoy, you know, I live my life preaching. Um, I I put sermons together. May not do a good job at it, but, but I enjoy trying to do it. I like getting in there and trying to figure out the right place to start, the right place to end. Um, and I've been thinking about this message. Uh, are there any preachers in here besides the pastor? You'll know what I'm talking about. I've been trying to think about if I were to write a sermon that had that as the proposition, Jesus is better, where would I begin? There are so many, it sounds so simple and yet it's so deeply profound. Where would you start a message like that? I've come to the conclusion where Billy would start. See, I know who I am. I would begin, if I were going to deliver this message to you, if I was going to try to, I would start in chapter two. If I want to encourage faithful perseverance, I would start there. Why? Because it's in chapter two where the author, the pastor, wants to grab the shoulders of his listeners. He wants to grab the chubby cheeks of those people. Have you ever done that to somebody? Grab them. Have you ever had that done to you? Some of you have. I have. You want to to grab and say, hey, you need to listen up. You need to remember. Pay attention. You need to remember what you've heard. That's where I would begin because I'm kind of an in-your-face type guy. Stomp, spit, and snort. It's just I'm in and out. That's where I would start. And yet I realize that if you start there, you have to do some backtracking. If you start in chapter 2, you're probably starting in the wrong place. I've got a friend. It's real surprising. First crowd was really surprised about that. Um, got a friend who pastors a church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. 
Um, his name is Ron Fite. He's one of those guys that if he were here today, if he'd have heard about two little kids uh, becoming Christian, accepting the gift of salvation, man, he'd have been shouting. He might have taken off on a run. I, I don't know. He's a good little guy. He'd scare most of you to death, but, but, but he's a wonderful man. I've been to his church a couple of times, and he says to me last time I was there, he says, Billy boy, that's what he calls me, he says, Billy boy, I like your preaching. He says, there's only one problem with it all. He says, you go around the barn a few times before you hit the target. Now, I'm not sure I understand what he means by that, and I don't need your help or your encouragement to understand, but I believe he means that I would start in chapter 2. If you start in chapter 2, you have to do some backtracking. But you'll be thankful this morning that the Hebrew preacher is a better preacher than Billy Huddleston because he starts at the appropriate place. In fact, you could say that he starts at the starting point of all things. I skipped over it for the longest time. See, he begins by saying God. And I simply wanted to read over top of that as the title or a name. But you need to understand he makes the statement when he begins by saying God. You've got to realize when you hear him start there that this is settled. This is not up for debate. It really doesn't matter what cultural opinion is. It's not even a question as to which God is being referred to. Not just one God amongst many. No, the author is referring to the one true God. It's settled in his heart and it's not up for debate. He begins with the God of Christianity. He is the beginning point of all things. He starts by pointing out something really incredible about the God of Christianity. Something that's going to distinguish him against every other small g so-called God. He says that the God of Christianity is a God that has a voice. How does he state that? He says God spoke. And it's a powerful thing. It really is. And probably most of us here on a Sunday morning, we don't have to be reminded that the God of Christianity is a God that has a voice. Why? Because most of us have been raised in this tradition. Most of us have sat in Sunday school classes, gone to vacation Bible school, or at least have watched the Bible on television. We know that in the creative process, we hear the creator of all, the God of all, we hear him in Genesis, he speaks. Six times you read a phrase, and God said. This is when he said, separating the light from the darkness. This is when he's separating the land and the sea, when he's flinging stars into space. It says six times, and God says, and every time you read that phrase, here's the amazing thing about it. It's always adjoined with this phrase, and it was so. Why is that significant? Because we have a God who has a voice. He is not silent. And when he speaks, things happen. In other words, he has a powerful voice. See, you realize there's no power in my voice. I mean, there's no power in your voice. Some of us think we have powerful voices, but we speak and it's just kind of empty. When God speaks, things happen. He's the creator. He flings worlds into order by his word. He has a powerful voice. But here's the incredible assertion that the Hebrew author is going to make that distinguishes our God, a 
against every other so-called God. It seems as though the God of Christianity primarily does not speak to display his power. Oh, his voice is powerful, but primarily it seems as though he speaks for a different purpose. He speaks for the purpose of relationship. See, he is a God who longs to be in relationship with his creation. He is a God who speaks for that purpose. In other words, this is so amazing to me. I'm using that term a lot this second service, but honestly, I'm amazed. He is a God who wants to be in relationship with you. He's a God who wants to be in relationship with me. And maybe you're not amazed by that on your half, but see, I'm amazed because I know who Billy is. I know the things that run through my head, the things that I would never share with you. I know where I've been. I know what's going on. I don't like myself sometimes. And yet still, he longs to be in relationship with me so much so he uses his voice to speak in personal manners. Is anybody else blown away by that? I mean, not because he likes me. Some of you might be amazed by that. But here's the amazing thing. Put the shoe on your foot. He knows what you think. You know what's going through your head right now? (laughs) That some of your faces are giving it away. (laughs) And I wish some of you would try to disguise it. He knows what you think at home. He knows the things that you never share with anybody. And yet he still longs to be in a relationship with you. Man, that's amazing to me. And he speaks for the purpose of relationship. Well, how do we know that? Because the author sets up the stages of God speaking in this opening statement. He says, God spoke in in times past or in last times, in times past. In other words, he's setting up the stages. In the first stage of Revelation, this is how the King James Version says it. Is anybody reading the King James It's okay. Be proud of it. Some of you are like, (laughs) it's not bad. (laughs) It's all a preference thing anyhow. This is how the King James says it. At sundry times and in diverse manners. Now, why wouldn't you want to read some sundry times? Did any of you talk like that? Let's have fun. I'm going to have fun whether you do or not. What is sundry in the first place? I'm not even sure I know the definition of that. I know sun-dried like tomato and things, but but I don't think it's the same thing. Um, In times past, in the first stage of Revelation, God spoke, this is how my translation says, at various times and in various ways. If you want a, a more literal translation of the language there, this is what the author is saying. In the first stage of Revelation, God spoke bit by bit, piece by piece, from many different viewpoints, from many different angles. It's almost as though we see, in the first stage of Revelation, we we, we see a little glimpse of God here. We catch a vision of His character here. We hear His voice thunder here. But we never seem to have a complete picture. And if we had the time, we're not going to take it. You'll be thankful for that. But if we had the time this morning, we could go around the sanctuary and, and take different people and let them tell us how in the first stage or in the old Testament, God spoke. And we'd come up with a number of different ways. I'm reminded that in the Old Testament, in the first stage of Revelation, God spoke through visions and dreams. Do any of you remember hearing how God spoke through visions and dreams? I remember a guy named Solomon. Remember King Solomon, son of King David? 
Um, he, when he becomes king, there's turmoil in the kingdom. Uh, Solomon is nothing more than a teenager, really. He's concerned about his ability to rule well. His father was loved. He had big shoes to fill. And so we watch him as he gets started on his rule on the right foot. He makes his way to Gibeah one night. He makes his way there for the express purpose of offering sacrifices to the God of his people, to the God of his father, more importantly, his God. And while he's there, God appears to Solomon. How? In a vision, in a dream. And what does God say? God says, Solomon, what one thing do you want from me? I mean, Solomon, if you can dream it, I'll produce it. If you name it, you can claim it. If you blab it, you can grab it. You tell me, Solomon, what one thing you want. God appeared to Solomon in a vision and a dream. He spoke like that in times past. Um, he spoke in miraculous ways. I'm reminded of a guy named Moses. Do you all know Moses? Uh, Disney or DreamWorks made a movie about him, Prince of Egypt, you know? Raised for 40 years in Pharaoh's court. I mean, everything's on his side. He's a prince of Egypt. Um, He gets ahead of God. He kills a man. And because of that, he's fleeing from Pharaoh's court. Why? Because now Pharaoh wants him dead. He winds up out in the wilderness for 40 years. Why is he in the wilderness? Because he becomes the shepherd of the flock. He spends his days with sheep. He spends his nights with sheep. He eats around the sheep. He smells like sheep. He talked to the sheep. How weird do you have to be to spend 40 years with sheep? I think about that. I'm sure he talked to him. Maybe even the sheep talked back. Do you think so? <laughs> nah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Preachers just aren't funny. You shouldn't try to do stuff like that. He's out there one day in the middle of the wilderness in this dry and desert land and he winds up on Mount Oreb. He winds up on the mountain of God and when you end up on the mountain of God, man, your life is going to change. He's there and he looks over and he sees a bush that's burning. And can I just suggest to you, that's not amazing. I just want you to think about it. I can tell by the way some of you are looking at me, but remember where they are. The wilderness. Or, modern day, Desert, dry, parched, barren. And if you want to start a fire, those are pretty good ingredients. Dry, parched. I mean, things burn in the wilderness. That's not amazing. But what's amazing is this bush was burning, but it wasn't burning. It was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. Now, that's a miracle. See, I don't believe there was any smoke billowing from that thing at all. I mean, the leaves aren't being touched by the flame. I mean, it's it's not burning. It's just this fire, this bush engulfed in flame. And Moses, it got his attention. It would get any of our attention. He began to walk over to it. And all of a sudden, God thundered from a bush that was burning but wasn't burning. Trying to get you to see bit by bit, piece by piece, from many different viewpoints, from many different angles, God spoke. We can follow the story. When Moses finally goes to Egypt land, every plague that was intended, every plague that occurred to Pharaoh, and it all had the purpose. Why? To point to Pharaoh, to show Pharaoh the one 
true God. He was revealing himself bit by bit, piece by piece, from many different viewpoints, from many different angles. When you come out of Egypt land, God's people had a very real evidence of his presence. How? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, bit by bit, piece by piece, from many different viewpoints, from many different angles. God spoke. And in the first stage of Revelation, we caught glimpses of him here, glimpses of him there. But the writer takes it a step further. He says primarily in the first stage of Revelation, God spoke through a group of men known as the prophets. And I've just got to say, I am thankful for the prophets. Why? Because they were those strange men that God used to stand before his people and be his mouthpiece. I am thankful this morning that God uses strange people. Aren't you thankful for that? Some of you ought to be. I mean, I'm thankful that God, if God can speak through a donkey, then surely he can speak through Billy Huddleston. Surely he can speak through you. And in the first stage of Revelation, he used this group of men known as the prophets to stand before his people and thunder, thus saith the Lord. He would use these people to thunder his word, to bring them back to center, to bring them to where they needed to be. And in the first stage, that's how God spoke bit by bit, piece by piece from many different viewpoints from many different angles. But, don't you love words like but? Come on. I I do. I I love words like but. Why? Because we've all run into buts. (laughs) Conjunction. B-U-T. Connecting type words. And however, although, those kind of words that, that you can have a wonderful picture being painted over here. And, all the, and then you run into although, however, conjunction or and and but. And you realize the, the picture might just change depending upon what's connecting to it. What's over there? You remember conjunction, junction, what's your fun? Are they always this tame? <laughs> uh, you, you know. But... Sets up the contrast. In these last days, pause here for a second. You do realize you're living in the last days. Do you know that this morning? Now, don't get real excited about that. We've been in the last days ever since Jesus came. But it's significant to understand. Now, we're closer than we've ever been. But we're significant to understand that we live in this stage. This is applicable To us. In these last days, God has spoken to us by Son. I want you to catch the contrast. First stage of Revelation. God spoke bit by bit, piece by piece, from many different viewpoints, from many different angles, through a group of men known as the prophets. But in these last days, first stage comes to a close, enter into the last stage of Revelation, the day in which you and I live, God has spoken to us by Son. And I know what you're thinking. I can tell by the look on your face. You're saying, Billy, I don't see where you're going. And besides that, you are a poor speaker. Not only are you a poor speaker, But you're a poor reader because in your translation, just like mine, when you look at that statement, you'll find a possessive pronoun or an article, something of the sort. If you're reading the King James Version or the New King James, it'll say God has spoken to us by his son. 
Um, in the more modern translations, it'll say something like, God has spoken to us by a son or by the son. But what's important for us to realize this morning is that when you run across that article or that pronoun, the King James and the New King James does a really good job at this. Some of your modern translations will. Um, you'll see that it's italicized. Um, and the reason why it's italicized is not for emphasis sake. It's not as though the translator latched upon a word that the writer has written and just wants to really bring that. It's not italicized for emphasis. It's italicized because in the original manuscript, it's not there. Both manuscripts that the new translations of the old come from, neither one, it's simply not there. And the translators have put it in italics because it makes sense for the way we speak. And it's really important to get a hold of that because what's going on here is uh, the writer is using a grammatical tool. Now, today, if you and I, if we are going to write a letter um, and we want to get a point across, if we're making a statement, how do we do that? Well, we add an exclamation mark, right? If, if some of you, you want to add five or ten exclamation marks. This is really the point. Um, if you're texting, how many of you text? <laughs> They're so shy. Uh, um, if you're wanting to make a point in texting, uh, how do you do it? You put it all in capital letters. And I really wish some of you would quit doing that because I feel like you're yelling at me all the time. But I mean, it's just the way we do. We put the, if you're writing on a word processor, on a computer, or, or, or something like that, how will you do it? You'll probably put it all in, in capital letters in that document. Or maybe you'll make it bold. Or, or maybe you'll put exclamation marks. Or maybe you'll put it bold, italics, and highlight. I don't know. We want to get our point across. And, and can I just say this since we're here? Uh, how many of you like things like spell check? I love spell check. I really do because I'm a poor speller. You think I'm a poor speaker? I'm a poor speller. I mean, I have trouble with certain words. I'm a 42-year-old man. You'd think you'd learn at some point. But I still have trouble with words that have G and N in it, like strength. I don't know when you spell it if it's strength or if it's strength. I don't know if it's the G or the N comes first. And I'm thankful for a program that somebody developed that will correct my misspelled words. But I have got to say, and I want this off my chest, I cannot stand autocorrect. I can't take it. I mean, when you're texting somebody and you send a message and then you look down and, and the word isn't just corrected, all of a sudden it's an entirely different word. I hate that. And I also wonder who it was that programmed that thing. Because they have a sick sense of humor. They use language I don't use. And sometimes, Paul, I've looked down and I thought, did I really just send that to so-and-so? I couldn't believe I don't talk like that. Some of you have been there. I have learned that autocorrect is my worst enema. <laughs> they didn't have any of those tools. Nothing like that. And what you see here, they didn't even have punctuation when you get to the original like we know. So what's going on is the author, by leaving off the pronoun, by leaving off the article, he's adding an exclamation mark. See, that's what they would do if they really wanted to get a point across. If they really wanted to say, this is the big deal. 
This is what I want you to see. They leave off the article. They leave off the pronoun. So I want you to see what's going on. We have a God who longs to be known. He wants to be in relationship with his creation. So much so, he speaks on personal levels. He speaks for the purpose of relationship. In the first stage of his speaking, in the old, God spoke bit by bit, piece by piece, through a group of men known as the prophets. We caught a glimpse of him here. We heard his voice thunder here. We caught his character here, but it never seemed to be complete. And in the first stage of revelation, God spoke bit by bit, piece by piece. But in these last days, in the final stage of revelation, in the days in which you and I live, God has spoken to us. Can't you sense? This is the main point. This is the thrust of his statement. This is what he wants you to see. This is the exclamation point of history. This is the culmination of all things. In the past, where we've only caught glimpses, where we only caught bits and pieces, now in the days in which you and I live, God has spoken to us by Son. Everything that we need is found in Him. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what the Father is all about, all you have to do is look and see what the Son is all about. If you want to know what the Father loves, look and see what the Son loves. If you want to know what moves the Father, look and see what moves the Son. If you want to see what what the Father hates, look and see what the Son hates. Why? Because we have God with a face on. It's the complete picture. Everything that we need, it's the final word. God has spoken to us by Son. We have it all. God has. That's powerful. It really is. You want to know why? You know what that means? We're without excuse. Everything that's needed has been provided. And can I just ask, and just so you know, you don't know me, I preach to myself more than I preach to you. Why is it we're always looking for something more? Why is it that we want to grab this book or that book when we've got everything we need in this book? No, I think we need to be people who read. I mean, I think we need to make wise choices on what we read. But really, I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm not your pastor, so I don't care what you read as long as this is your first book. I'm really concerned because it seems as though we're on a trend. We're we're a church that's becoming biblically illiterate. We find our foundation in everything else. And I want you to know, he is the final word. Well, let me just say it like this. Anything outside of him, we don't need. I don't know why we look. I have people come to me. I told them in the first service, I'll tell you as well. I go to different places. Um, I, I'm in church more than I'm out of church and, and I'll go anywhere that invites me. So I'm not always in the church of the Nazarene. I'm tenured, I'm ordained and, and this is my church. But, but I, if a place is dumb enough to invite me, I'm dumb enough to go. 
And from time to time, I'll go to some places, even in the Church of the Nazarene, and somebody will come to me. They're well-intentioned. I, I, I think I know what they're saying, but they'll come and they'll say, Oh, Brother Billy, Brother Billy, do you have a new word from the Lord? Do you have a new word? And that makes me nervous. And I used to not know how to respond to something like that. But now, since I've come to Hebrews, I just say, Well, I've got any one of these. Because a new word implies that the old word was inadequate. And I want you to know this morning, he is more than adequate. Everything we need is found in him. Hey, by the way, that's why we don't need another testament. That's why there's no such thing as modern day prophets Now, some of you will disagree with that, but you're wrong. (laughs) The Old Testament role of the prophet, Jesus fulfilled. There's no prophet. I I was watching something on TV the other day. It's probably my first mistake. And they were talking about the school of the prophet. And they talked about how the prophecy from this one guy from 2014, how it came to be. And they started to read that prophecy and just said something like, You're going to have a good year. (laughs) Well, you didn't find humor in that, but I think everything we need, folks, is found in Him. It's the final word. We are without excuse. So here's the question. Are you listening? If God has spoken the final word, if everything we need is found in the Son, are you listening? I'm finding out in my own life that I need to listen more. I run this thing quite a bit. You know, sometimes I think I like to hear my own self talk. I I run, and I'm finding that I need to start listening. And I'm convinced if we're ever going to have revival in the church of Jesus Christ, more specifically in the church of the Nazarene, hey, I'll bring it here, more specifically in the church of the Nazarene in Marysville, Ohio, We have to become people who listen. We have a God. This is not up for debate. It doesn't matter cultural opinion. It doesn't matter what you think. We have a God. One true God. It's the God of Christianity. He's a powerful God. He speaks and things happen. But He primarily uses His voice for the purpose of relationship. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be in relationship with me. He wants to be in relationship with your neighbor. So much so, in times past, He spoke bit by bit, piece by piece, from many different angles, from many different viewpoints, through a group of men known as the prophets. But in these last days in which you and I are living, God has spoken to us The final word. He is coming again, but he has spoken to us by son. 
Are you listening? Let me make it more specific. What's he saying to you? Some of you have tuned him out for so long. Some of you are so grounded in routine. What is he saying to you? What's it going to take to be the person that he intends or the church that he intends for us to be? What is he speaking? Are you listening? God, help us to be a group of people who stop running this and start listening to what he's saying so we can get in on what he's doing. God has spoken. Are you listening? Jesus. Again, I'm reminded of my tendency to give my attention in so many different places. Not necessarily bad places, but help me to be a man who listens to you. I confess, Jesus, I want to know you like I've never known you before. It's easy to fall into a routine. It's easy to rely on what you said yesterday. I want to hear your voice in ways like I've never heard before. And you're speaking. There's no question to that. So would you help me to listen Would you help me to hear your voice above every other voice that screams for attention? And then when I hear, help me to respond. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning. They've been very patient with me. I believe that you are speaking to them. I wouldn't presume to know what it is that you're saying, but you know and they know. And somehow would you help us today to be the type of people who finally hear, who finally respond to your voice. We don't want to go through the motions. We're sick of going through the motions. Be alive within us like we've never known. I'm going to invite you all over the sanctuary to stand to your feet with your heads bowed. Stand quickly, please, if you're able. The pianist is playing in a moment. Pastor Paul will come and lead us in a closing prayer, but I just want to invite you. There's no pressure on this. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to spend some personal time in His presence. There's an altar here. Maybe you just want to walk down and say, Lord, 
Forgive me for not hearing what you've been saying to me. Maybe you want to come and say, Lord, help me to listen. I wouldn't presume to know what it would be, but you know, he knows. So as Paul, Pastor Paul prepares to come, why don't you come as well? One has come. Don't you want to?